Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. Well, uh, I'm going to pray before we get started, and uh, just ask that you pray along with me, and uh, then we'll dig into this passage of Scripture for today. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this day, and I just pray now before we look at this passage, God, I ask that your Spirit, Lord, is present and real today. Uh, Lord, in my words that are going to be spoken, we're praying for that, hoping for that. Lord, in hearts that are ready to hear and listen, Lord, we're praying for that and hoping for that. And God, we just ask that you would bless us today with your presence in that way. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so uh, we're talking about, um, I think I'm missing a slide. I am, one of them didn't show up. Talking about doing church, I'm going to call it the Thessalonian way, okay? Not to be differentiated from the Ephesian way or the Colossian way or any other way. We're just talking about what does it look like to do church God's way, and we're near the end of 1 Thessalonians, is why I'm calling it the Thessalonian way. I've got about three more lessons, and I'm calling them lessons for two reasons. One, because I'm trying to do these two things here. I'm trying to answer the question, what does it mean to be a part of this Christian community? So our community has grown a little bit. What does it mean to actually be a part of a Christian community? Uh, I want to answer that question. I'm also looking at um, answering the question, what does it mean to be a member of this specific church, Edgewood, right? And so on the bigger scope of this, part of the Christian community, I know I've said this every week, the last few weeks, but I'm going to say it again. There are, there's only one movement. There's only one, only one movement, only one party, only one organization that is started by Jesus Christ himself and paid for with his blood. We call it the church, Right? I'm using the word community interchangeably with that. If you want to know what to get behind, I would say this is the thing to get behind. God's organization, God's community, the church. It doesn't mean that there can't be good done in other things, in other ways. What it does mean is that there is only one that was founded by Christ. Does that make sense? Give me a little head nod. Yeah? Okay. Um, second, I know that a lot of churches, when you have new people come, uh, they have a membership class, right? And they go, you want to be a member of our church? You can take our membership class. Well, I don't know if you notice this or not, but we don't have one of those. Um, we're, we're looking at how can we do those kinds of things. Um, we don't have a lot of, uh, additional staff. We don't have anybody that's full-time all the time. Um, and so we, we're limited in our scope of what we can do. And so I'm actually thinking about this, and I think it was providential that God has blessed us with some additional faces, because I'm looking at this last part, and I'm going, this is precisely what I'd want to tell somebody that said, I want to be a part of this church, okay? So let's go back through very quickly. Let's review. Um, On August the 2nd, we did the first of the end of Thessalonians, and I called it the leadership of the community. So God has a lot to say about the leadership of the community, but the specific part that uh, Paul brings up is this, He says, uh, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. I'm sorry, I lost my place. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. And so I think that there's something wrong with my slides not looking right. (laughs) I don't know what happened. 
I wonder if they're all going to be that way. I might have Katie take a look at it for me later. Yeah? Can you do it while I'm talking? I wouldn't be able to do that. I can't do two things at once. Um, so the leadership of the church, I think of as shepherd leaders. God's leadership pattern is shepherd leadership. But I think specifically in this passage, what we see is that the leaders are doing a couple things here. They're laboring among you, and they're, they're over you in the Lord in the sense that they're going to be admonishing you. And I don't think of them as over you in the Lord, like I'm over you, like do what I say, right? That's not what it's like. Although it's kind of fun to talk like that every once in a while, isn't it? Um, I talked to Joe. Not really. I'm pretty nice to him. You'd be, you'd be amazed at how nice I am to my kids. I'm so, I'm so pleasant. I never tell them to do anything. I just ask them kindly, right? I just go, Joe, could you please? And maybe he does. Um, but we've got this idea that leadership can be that way. In the Bible, it's not that way. It's not this over you. It's over you in the sense of the way an umbrella is over you to protect you, right? And so that's the idea of leadership in the church. Jesus is the head of the community, and I think it's just really a part of you saying, okay, I'm going to trust God's way of leading me. To be a part of a church is trusting God's way of leading you, because God says, this is how I'm going to lead you, right? So being a part of a church, to try to exist out there on your own apart from church, you're skipping and ignoring God's way of bringing leadership into your life, and that's through his church, his people. Second, we talked about the ministry of the church, and I don't think that one's going to pop up yet because I think she's adjusting. It's okay. Don't stress. I can still say the things, right? Can you guys operate without PowerPoint slides? Okay. We'll see if I can. Um, the second one, August the 16th, I talk about the ministry of the church. And the thing about, oh, hey, it's up there. The ministry of the church. And the ministry of the church, there's three parts of it. Warning, encouraging, and helping. And we found it in this passage of scripture right here. It says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So there's three parts, and I think that every, I'm just going to be honest with you, every church ministry finds its root in one of these three things. Now, we, we come up with all kinds of programs and ways that we're going to do it and systems and ways to handle it and all kinds of activities to go along with these things, but I believe that this is what it comes down to right here. There's three things, warning the disorderly, encouraging the discouraged, and helping those who are disabled or disadvantaged. And I think that's a key part of understanding what it means to be in ministry. I also think it's important for you guys to understand that when I say be in ministry, I don't mean, some of you think this, they go, Pastor Matt, he's gone into the ministry, right? Isn't that what you say when somebody's decided to be a pastor? They've gone into the ministry. Well, the Bible teaches what? The Bible teaches that the work of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So who's to be doing ministry in the church? All of us. There's one particular element that I'm to be doing. I'm to be equipping you for ministry, okay? And so this is what your ministry looks like. Warning the disorderly, encouraging the discouraged, helping the disabled or disadvantaged. And I have to say, a lot of people love those second two, but they look at that first one, this idea of warning, this admonishing the idle. And that word idle, when we talked about this, has to do with this idea of being disorderly, uh, unruly. And I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of people that look at church and they go, I'm okay with church doing those other two things, but you better not warn me about anything, right? You better not warn me about anything. And that's where you see a lot of people, right? Right, that's the line. You warn me, I'm outie. And you know what? We have this horrible system set up in our country the way churches are done today because you can go out. How many churches are there in Danville? You go, oh, I don't like this one. There's another one I can find. 
right? And, and I don't like that. Uh, I'm fine with this one until they say this, and then they say, that. I'm, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to head over here. Now, there's reasons. There's good reasons why we ought to go between church to church, right? There's excellent reasons for that. But we're all part of the body, the body of Christ. And I'm telling you right now, one of the things that is so important is if you really want to be a part of God's community, you should want somebody to warn you when you're doing the wrong thing. I heard one yes. Can I say that again? You want somebody, I do, you want somebody to warn you when you're doing the wrong thing, when you're going the wrong way. Don't you want somebody to warn you and say, you're going the wrong way? Yes, that was a little bit better, good. Yes. All right, next one. The actions of the community. The actions of the community is the next one we talked about. We talked about this last week, August 23rd. Uh, there were two ways that we looked at the actions of the community. What is this community? What are we actually going to do day to day, week by week? And it's captured in two ideas here, non-retaliation and doing good. There's a don't and there's a do. We talked about this last week. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So don't live in this pattern of paybacks, right? Don't live in this pattern of like, you did to me, I'm going to do to you. That's not how we're to live. We're to live in doing good. And who are we to do good to? Everybody, right? Each other, everyone else, our enemies, our persecutors, everybody. I think that this can be a challenge unless your eyes are fixed on Jesus, who not only suffered himself, suffered injustice, but promises true, lasting, eternal justice in his kingdom. Does that make sense? I'm going to say that one again. This can be a challenge unless you have your eyes fixed on Christ, who not only suffered injustice, but promises true, lasting, eternal justice in his kingdom. Today, I'm going to talk about this last one here, the attitude of the community. You guys ready for an attitude adjustment? Yeah? Okay. Sure. Sure we are, Matt. The attitude of the community. Um. I call the attitude, I could have called it a lot of other things, relationships or how we view, I almost went with perspective of the community. I went with attitude because I think it's talking about the habits that characterize Christians' relationship with God. And I think that has a lot to do with attitude, for lack of a better word, attitude. The verse is real easy. There's three verses in this little part here. In fact, if you've never taken the time to memorize scripture, I'm gonna help you do that today. All right, we're gonna memorize verse 16. Verse 16 is just those first two words. So I'm going to say 1 Thessalonians 5.16, and then you're going to repeat after me the reference, and then I'm going to say the verse, rejoice always, and then you're going to repeat, okay? So let's try that. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. All right, now let's do verse 17. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. All right, the last verse is a little bit longer. I don't know if your minds can handle that many words, but let's try. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I may ask you to do that later without looking. Let's see if we can do it. 
All right, so tell me before we go on, what words do you see in there? You guys know I'm starting school on Monday, right? I'm just a dean, but uh, uh, so I don't have any classes, but I'm thinking school-minded right now. So let's ask you some questions here. I'm going to ask you the first one. And if you have an answer, I'd appreciate if you could raise your hand and I'll call on you. <laughs> you don't like the raising of the hand? Uh, what words do you see in here that give you the idea that this is an all times and every kind of situation kind of idea? What, what words do you see? Just one, just one. raise your hand. Abby. Uh, excellent answer, Abby. Great job. I should have brought candy. Um, what other words do you see in here that give you this, like, this is an always kind of thing? Lucinda? Without ceasing, excellent. The back row is doing great over here. Jeff, what do you see? Absolutely. What else do you guys see? This always and all times and always, Amanda? All circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is an always, without ceasing, all circumstances, all the time kind of thing. So let's dig in here. Let's look at the first one. Very simple. Rejoice always. First Thessalonians 5.16. Oh, wow. You guys think. First Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Oh, my. That's embarrassing. All right. Wow. I don't know if we can move on from that. Um, it could be translated, be joyful always. Does that sound weird to you? As a command. I mean, think about it. Somebody walking up to you and going, you, be joyful. Now, go. that feel weird? I, th I think it's a little odd to think about it as a command. I think it can be, I think it can feel odd. Somebody coming up and you say, now, okay, five seconds, be joyful. I get it. Be joyful, now. Okay. Hey, it worked. Good. Be joyful as a command. Well, first, I want to point out that this is an evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so let's talk about this joy for just a second. This is an evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Some of you know this. Um, uh, <clears throat> Paul talked about this at the beginning of Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. He told the Thessalonians already, he said this, he said, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy Right, So here they're under affliction, and they receive the word in affliction, but with joy. And where does he say it come from? Of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we all know the example from Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, right? The, the Spirit is producing these things. We could go to Romans 14, 17, which says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of Joy is not a matter of these things. It's a matter of these, of righteousness and peace and the joy in the Holy Spirit. So in the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit, it can be, I believe, commanded. Be joyful. Philippians 3.1, Paul actually does command it this way, just like he does to the Thessalonians. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Rejoice in the Lord. There it is, written as a command. Rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, 4, he says this to the Philippian church. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So here's this command, rejoice. So I could send you out today with the command, couldn't I? I could just say, okay, this week I want you to be joyful. Just do it. Right? I mean, technically, could I do that? Yeah. I don't want you to think that these commands deny that adversity brings sadness and grief. Okay? 
Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. Or 1 Peter 1, 6, which says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, well, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I don't think the Bible is blind to these things. And just what we talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And I think that one of the things you begin to realize as you study the scriptures is that the joy is a joy that Christians, and if you've been a Christian for a long time, I think you, told, you already get this. There's a joy that is mingled with, quite often, mingled with grief. Do you know that feeling? That joy blended in with grief? Have you ever felt grieved but, but, but joyful at the same time? That is the joy I believe that this is pointing us towards. Not that it can't be just pure joy. And this joy, I think, is bigger than and more than just putting a smile on your face. One of my, my masks, you know, we had to wear the mask. One of my masks is just a big smile. I almost brought that today, like, put a smile on your face. I mean, that's an easy way to do it, right? Just, but I don't think that's what this is talking about. This is not talking about something super Official. This is not, though, characteristic of other belief systems. In uh, our day, I think there's a lot of emotional responses that can be displayed as a response to affliction. But I want to go back to Paul's day. There was a response that was very near, close to this response he's talking about. There was a group of people called the Stoics. Okay? When you hear the word Stoic, what do you think of? Right? I, I don't have a word. I just have like a, a facial expression. Stoic. Right, yeah, rigid, just like mm. the Stoics. Now, the Stoics were around during Paul's day. They were present in Thessalonica. And I think maybe even today there's some of this, but their approach to having joy was a dispassionate indifference. We would recognize it under the phrase, que sera, sera. Have you ever said, it's going to be what it's going to be. Life is what it is. And, and, that, and you know what? I'm telling you right now, there, I don't have a problem with that in and of itself, but I'm telling you right now, that is not what the Bible is teaching. It is not teaching a, you know, life smash. You go, oh, well. Now, there's some people that can do that, and I'm, I'm happy for you, okay? I don't always do that. I need something bigger, to be honest with you. I need something bigger, because if it was just, oh, I'm just going to let what be is going to be what is, that does not do it for me. I need something bigger. I need something deeper than that. And so I want to share with you a thought that I believe that Christian joy is rooted in this gospel message. Now, as we go through all these, we're going to unpack this a little bit. But this is where, in fact, I'm sitting here right now in my head. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, every, if you're, you haven't been listening so far, let's ignore everything. You don't, I mean, you don't have to even pick up anything I've been saying. It's right here that in my mind is where it starts to pick up to something that's important and practical in my head, okay? So if you're with me, get with me right here. Joy, I believe, is rooted in the gospel or the good news message. Think about even at Christmas time, one of the things that we say, and this comes from Luke chapter two, verses 10 and 11, it says, and the angel said to them, if you're not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I'm telling you, I believe that absolutely. When Jesus stepped into this world as a baby, was born into this world as a baby, that was good news. And it was good news of great joy. If you understand what happened in that moment, that almighty God, the the same one who John says created the universe by the word of his mouth, became a baby and was born into the world for a purpose, to be our savior, the savior of humanity. God did that. That's good news of great joy. We live in a world after that happened. The people living before it were looking and hoping that someday Jesus would come. And I'm telling you right now, we do that too. Sometimes we're like, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. I'm telling you, he came once already. He saved us. The salvation has been made clear. The, the next time he shows up is just going to bring all this to fruition. But his kingdom started then. We're not to be sitting around waiting for God's kingdom to start. He's like, it's now. When he was walking this earth, he's like, it's now. It's here. It's now. It's starting right now, and you can be a part of it. That's good news of great joy. In fact, I would say that even Jesus himself pictured this way of being joyful as he went to the cross, in obedience to the cross. This next verse I'm going to show you. Every time I read this verse, my mind is a little bit blown. I'm just going to tell you right now. I, there's nothing I can do to get your mind as blown as my mind is blown. Okay, I wish there was a way I could say it in such a way that you'd get it. I mean, I'd come over there and massage your temples if I needed to, but that'd be creepy. <laughs> Hebrews 12 says this. It says, look into Jesus. This is what we're to do. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter, the completer of our faith. Who for, This is the words that get me every time who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That that phrase right in the middle there, because sometimes we look at Christ, what he was doing on the cross, and we sit there and we go, how, I mean, this is telling us, how did he do that as as a human being? And we know he was God, and so part of us wants to go, well, as, as God, obviously he could do it, but he was operating in his humanity and he endured the cross without letting his Godhood step in and go, I don't want to do this anymore. How did he do that? For the joy that was set before him. He was looking beyond what, what was right here and there was something past that. He was like filled with joy. This is why so many times with his disciples, he says, I've, I've come to make your joy complete. And you're here to complete my joy. Who for the joy that was set before him, Christ on his way to the cross, had his eyes fixed beyond what was here. Did he suffer? Yes. Was it for joy? Yes. It was joy in his sights. Now I'm gonna tell you right now, if you sit here and you go, I don't have joy in my I don't even want it. I want misery. I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't believe you. God can do anything. I'm gonna tell you right now, one of the key elements that he offers is a joy that is bigger 
than anything that could happen. This is why you've got Christians who, they seem nuts. Like, yeah, it's one thing when you got the Christians coming to church and they're like, God gave me this, God did this, God did this. And that's great. I love it when he does that stuff, aren't you? But how is it that you see those ones that go, I wrecked my car. This, my spouse died. And they go, but I still rejoice. What? What's this? They look at me. In the, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, there's Abraham. It's talking about Abraham. And he, says, he says he had this prominence, but he was looking beyond. There was another city that he had his eyes on. I believe most of us in here, if we're truly honest, we go, we want joy. And I'm telling you, if you're going for anything else, I shared this with somebody last week. I can't remember who it was. There's this, this is not my notes. There's a uh, story where C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, I've probably shared this with you guys a hundred times, but he's talking about um, what many people are like. He said, there's many people and as, you know, someone from England, instead of saying vacation, he said holiday. He said, he said you're, there's many people that are content to be, just a picture in your head, a back alley. Have you seen a puddle in a back alley before? You ever notice the rainbow color on top of the, the puddle, that film, right? Is that a place that you go, uh, now think of all the little, little, little ones here. Can you see me grabbing Darius and going, here you go. Have fun, buddy. That's gross, isn't it? Now, would he, would he have fun, Simone? <laughs> he, he would. C.S. Lewis says, so many of us, we, we, we're satisfied with playing with, making mud pies and playing in puddles in the alley when what God is offering us is a holiday or in our way of saying, a vacation at sea. The joy that I'm talking about that God is commanding is a joy that is rooted in something that is just beyond anything you're gonna. And so you're sitting here today and I'm, I know that some of you, you, you seek every other possible way to find joy other than in God himself. He is the source. He's our savior. He's the greatest thing in this universe. And we have access to him through Christ by the power of the spirit, have access to the father. That's the joy that we're talking about. Verse 17, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 Pray without ceasing. ceasing. And this could be translated pray continually, pray all the time, just keep praying. I don't think at all that any of us would think that this means that, okay, if I'm going to obey this verse, I need to be like walking around constantly praying, you know, running into things. We know that, right? I think we know that. Uh, One of my uh, commentaries said, prayer is not to be limited to prescribed hours, but should rather be a common and constant element in the daily life. I think that that's capturing the idea of it, that there's nothing wrong with set prescribed times of prayer. I I think those things are great. I think we should not ignore them. We can find all kinds of examples in the Bible from Daniel, who talked about he had a custom of going to his room at this time to pray. And even when the, the king said, you can't pray anymore, he still, he had his custom and he went to this particular time and opened his windows and said, I'm gonna pray anyway. From those sorts of things to the times when Jesus talked about uh, the importance of praying in secret, getting off to pray. We see times where men of God and women of God will go out into the wilderness to pray. 
But I think this is also saying, Paul's saying, but that, that it shouldn't stop there. There should be an ongoing, and I'm going to use the word attitude, of prayer. This word that is translated without ceasing was already used in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 2. It said, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you uh, in our prayers. So Paul's already, you know, he's saying just all the time. Did that mean he was just 24 hours a day, seven days a week saying, thank you for the Thessalonians. Thank you for the Thessalonians. Thank you for the, is that what he was doing? No, but the, there's this heart of, of gratitude and, and prayer that's going up to God, like this communion with God, this constantly is without ceasing um, Charity and I joke about this. She's not in here, so I can joke about this. We, you guys know she got moved to a different building. Well, we have those uh, video chat things. And we've joked about, since we both have offices, of just pulling up the video chat at the beginning of the day and they just have it all day, so we get, it'd be like we're in the same room. It, it, it doesn't work very well, to be honest with you. Because then she starts talking to somebody in her office, and I think she's talking to me, and then I get confused, and then I'm talking to, yeah, it's, it's very confusing. It doesn't work. Um, Obviously, that wouldn't work in that sense where you're like constantly talking this way. But there is, I think, this idea that's presented that we ought to persevere in prayer, not give up in prayer. Romans 12, and Paul says it this way. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I think the idea here, again, is this don't give up in prayer. It's also captured in Luke 18, 1, when Jesus teaches this parable. He says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then he tells a parable after this of this widow who keeps going to this unjust judge and saying again and again and again, could you do this for me? Could you do this for me? Please do this for me. And she doesn't give up. And Jesus tells this parable to say, this is what it ought to be like. The difference is that God is not an unjust judge. He is like a father for us. And he calls us to pray to him, to cry out to him. And we know that he can already do more than we ask. This is what it says in Ephesians to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to uh, the power at work within us. I mean, this father, he, I mean, there's verses that talk about he already knows what you need. Th this is not about informing him. I think what might help with this idea of constant prayer is if we rethink the idea behind it. Uh, Gene L. Green, a guy who wrote a commentary in First Thessalonians, he, he talks about it this way. And you're going to have to kind of enter into this thought process. Now, once again, I'm getting back in my head. I'm thinking, okay, I don't know if they were listening before, but please listen to this, okay? Unlike pagan prayers, think back in those days, praying to Zeus and all those the different gods of the world, right? Unlike pagan prayers, which sought to influence the gods to have a favorable disposition towards their suppliants, so those people that are praying to them, unlike that, Christian prayer began with confidence in a God who was their father and whose desire was to do them good as his children. Now, I'm mentioning this because we hear that and we go, yeah, I just picture someone praying to a pagan God and, and they're thinking, okay, I'm going to do some things to try to win them over. Let's be honest. Do you pray that way? I think some of us do if we're honest. You ever had something that you want or you want God to do or a need that you have and you go to God and instead of just saying, Lord, need what, what, what do we do sometimes? Let's be honest now. Maybe not everybody, but I think most of you do this. You, you got that in your head, right? You're thinking about it and you're like, well, I can't just come right out and say it. And you start doing like what we used to do to, you know, our parents or, you know, you're looking awfully nice today. <laughs> 
that was doing such a great job. As a, I mean, we do that with, Lord, thou, and then we, we start talking Shakespearean. Lord, thou art, art, art holy, art thou. Lord, dost thou see me, a humble sinner? What hast thou done that I have not been thankful for? I ask thine forgiveness. Okay, I'm just curious. Anybody in here, when you go to pray, shift into that mode? Anybody? Anybody used to? <laughs> yeah. Okay, maybe it's not full on like that, but does anybody in here, just to kind of curiosity, does anybody, sometimes you go, I feel like, especially if you haven't prayed in a while, like I want to pray because I got this need, but I need to butter God up a little bit. I got a couple of hands there. And kind of butter them up a little bit. Like I just want to... Pagan prayer is based in that. That's the way they would pray. They manipulate. In fact, it goes on, he says this, the familial relationship, that family relationship, not the manipulation that at times was symbolized by votive offerings and pagan rites, was the foundation stone of Christian prayer. We're to come to him as a father as a good father, as a loving father, as the picture of what all fathers ought to be, our heavenly father. And we come to him in that mode and with that idea. There's nothing about what we're gonna do is about manipulation. And if you have that thought process, that's something that ought to be abandoned right away. But then when you start to adopt this, suddenly you can pray continually. You're in communion with the father. You start... Just, and some of you know this side of it. Where you, all the time, all day long, something happens, oh, thank you, Lord, bless you. This is what a blessing, God, thank you. And it's just this nonstop communion with the Father. All right, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. The key, I think, is not the, the, that it says give thanks for all circumstances, but it says give thanks in all th- circumstances. I think this is a good way of making sure we understand this. Um, I know Ephesians 5.20 might lead us to think this. Let's take a look at that one real quick. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this one here. It says, give thanks always and for everything. So it'd be easy to go, well, I should give thanks for everything. It punches, somebody punches me in the face. Thank you, God. It, it, John did, didn't he? I can't, we can't argue with that one. He did. Um, I think that most of you, because I think that most of you are mature enough in the faith that you can see beyond and, and see what this is saying. This is, this is a, and it goes back to what we're looking at before. This is a perspective that's bigger than just these things. And you start to see things differently. Instead of seeing some things certain ways, you go, and, and instead of seeing things just as bad, we love the good things. And we're praying to God for the good things. But then even when the bad things come, what do we do? Many times we start to realize, wait a minute, he's doing something you ever have that approach? He's do- I don't know what it is yet. He's doing something. I can't tell you how many times I've been in the praise and testimony time here at this church, and I've had somebody say, raise your hand. I just want to praise the Lord. I lost my job this week. <laughs> we don't clap for that one. Um, we're always like, oh, no. Uh, praise the Lord. My, my car broke down. Praise the Lord. My- what do you- I don't think that when you're saying that, that that's actually what you were wanting to happen. Correct? Am I correct in assuming that? 
I think that probably what's going on, and correct me if I'm wrong, probably what's going on is you're seeing that event and you're saying, I think that God still has good purposes in that. This could go one way. This could go a way that could take me down. Because I'm seeking after him, I'm going to rejoice always. And I'm looking at this going, all right, Lord, what are you going to do? And I'm going to give thanks in the middle of all of these circumstances. I mentioned earlier the Stoics case, Sarah, Sarah viewpoint. I don't think this is at all the same thing, and I need to read a little bit here. That philosophy of the Stoics embraced the notion that the universe was rational and moved according to good purposes. Therefore, whatever happened was precisely what was supposed to happen. That's what the Stoics said. It wasn't about God. It was just, there, there's good thing. And so that something happened, they go, I guess that was what was supposed to happen. That's not what I'm saying as a Christian we do. I think we're looking beyond that and bigger than that. Consider Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 8, says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I'd love to break this one down, but I want you to capture just this one part. For those who love God, all things work together for good. So how can someone say, I'm going to be thankful in all circumstances? I think this is where it's at right here. The very end of this verse, verse 18, says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You don't have to sit here and say, what's God's will for my life? Here it is. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In all circumstances, be thankful. This is God's will for you. And this applies to all three, not just the final one. Let me share a couple more things here before I close. And I'm going to be honest with you today. I feel very scatterbrained. You ever had days like that? I feel very, like, my mind, like usually when I'm up here, I've got the notes and I'm like working through it and it's fitting together. This feels very scattered to me. Um, but I, I, don't wanna, I don't want you because of the way I am today miss this final part, okay? Have you ever heard the word providence? You guys heard that word before? Providence is a distinctly, specifically Christian word. Um, J.I. Packer, who actually just recently passed away, he was a theologian. One of the first theological books I ever read was by J.I. Packer. He's been around for ages. He was, lived in England. He was part of the Anglican Church, but um, has a, so many good, good books. Um, he says this of providence. He says, um, providence is the unceasing activity of the creator... God, whereby an overflowing bounty and goodwill, overflowing bounty and goodwill. So he, this, the, the creator has unceasing activity. He's, he's doing things. And in his overflowing bounty and goodwill, he upholds his creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs, governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for his own glory. I absolutely believe that is true. We have a God. I do not believe that we have a God that is up there going, oh, that's not what I wanted. I got to fix it. We have God who goes, just wait. Watch how this works out. 
Watch how this works out. Isn't that what we just heard in Romans 8, 28? John Calvin, theologian in the 1500s, said this. He says, what is fitter or more suitable for satisfying us? I'm sharing this, but this idea of providence, he's talking about providence. This is actually from Calvin's commentary on Thessalonians. He's talking about providence. And he's talking about this idea of rejoicing always and praying without ceasing and being thankful. He says, for what is fitter or more suitable for, for satisfying us? And what he's talking about, is actually had a different word there. He had pacifying. Um, I, I switched it to satisfying. But pacifying is still really good. But what do you do? Sometimes that, that pacifier works, doesn't it, on the baby? Fussy, 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 fussy. <laughs> it's like a plug, right? What is fitter or more suitable for satisfying us than when we learn that God embraces us in Christ so tenderly that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that befalls us? Again, I absolutely, how, how in the world can somebody just be joyful always and praying without ceasing and giving thanks and all? I believe it's genuinely because of knowledge. How you see things can affect how you respond, can they not? Um, for my birthday, my family got me these two boards and it was actually something I really needed because I'm constantly losing my wallet and it's one of those things that you put your wallet on like when you get home, you put your wallet, it's like a little tray and it's got a little spot to hang your glasses and all this stuff. But when, it, when, they, when I first opened the bag, they probably were looking at my face because I pulled it out and it was in two pieces and I'm like, eh. <laughs> nice. No idea what it was. <laughs> but, but then when this is what it, oh, it goes, this, oh, oh, and it fits and suddenly then the light bulb comes on and I had it and a, an actual response, didn't, wasn't forced, I had an actual response from realizing what it was. Like, oh, this is a really good gift. Suddenly my, my perspective, because I, I saw it differently, it changed. I absolutely believe, and I know that I, I lean in that direction. You guys know I'm a math teacher. I lean in the direction of the facts and the knowledge. And I'm, I'm, I know that I lean that way, but I'm telling you right now, there's something so important about knowing truth and how it can affect how you respond to life. And this is one of those things that I absolutely believe is true. What is fitter, more suitable for satisfying it? Like actually satisfying where I'm like, I actually feel satisfied. What can do that more than this? And I agree with John Calvin. He says that then that we learn that God embraces us in Christ so tenderly that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that befalls us. I see life that way. Everything that happens, I go, God's doing something. And it's not K Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. It's not that. It's not, it's not based in, you know, stupidity. It's based in reality that I believe that there is an actual God, not, not some force doing this. There's an actual God with a, a, who's a person and he, he sent his son and he did it out of love and he saved us and he's rescued us and there was a price that was paid to, to bring us in. And so now he's, he's working all things. Those who are in Christ, he's working all things for our good and for his glory. And if you believe that truth, and I'm telling you right now, if you don't believe that truth, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. I don't think you can do it. 
unless you're Bobby McFerrin. His new Bobby McFerrin is. Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> okay, sorry. 80s song, my bad. Mark Howell, another theologian, said this Providence affirms that no detail is irrelevant or insignificant. God is using everything for our ultimate good in his everlasting glory. Providence affirms that no detail is irrelevant or insignificant. Man, change your mind. I'm going to close with a reading of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to go past that verse 28 and verses 31 to 39. I'm going to read this, I'm going to pray, and you'll be dismissed. Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen ones? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, he was who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You guys know what interceding means? Speaking on your behalf. Where's Christ at? The right hand of the Father, interceding, speaking on your behalf to the Father, the creator of the universe. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Now, I think that the answer, the implied answer that you know is no. So let's answer some of these. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. What about distress? What about persecution? Your nose are very weak. What about famine? What about nakedness? What about danger? What about the sword? No. Will these things separate you from the love of Christ? No. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In the song. All right. Um, I'm going to pray, and then they have a song, and as soon as the song is over, we're going to, if you guys want to go ahead and pop on up here, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I do just thank you that we are more than conquerors through Christ. Lord, I thank you that we are not living in this world on the whims of a force, even if it was a force for good. Lord, I thank you that we are living in a universe that is governed by a heavenly father who sent his son Christ to die on the cross for our sins in order to restore us to fellowship with him. I thank you for that. Pray that you help us not to forget that. I pray that those in this room today that don't believe this would come to believe that truth. 
I pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.